Hey y'all, welcome to Deep in the Work, a culture podcast. I'm Delana R.A. Dameron, a Black Southern woman, a sometimes historian, lover of Black culture, poet and writer, emerging backyard gardener and culture fundraising strategist. I am also the founder of Red Olive, an arts and culture fundraising firm with its philanthropic arm, Black Art Futures Fund, a collaborative project seeking to move people and resources to small Black arts organizations across the country. In all things, I am after the Blackest artistic future possible, and deep in the work is my love letter to the people who make it work, specifically the Black culture workers, the undercurrent of the field. Deep in the work is for you if you want to think about ways to go deeper in your own work, hear the stories of colleagues in the field, and perhaps understand the threads that tie us all together. In this first season, I'm giving flowers to Black women, culture workers who are deep in the work with me. In this episode, we're talking to Shonda McDill, who is my philanthropy sister and a member of the maybe newly formed Shea Babies Group. Folks who've had had the pleasure to come a professional age in the culture world with Shea Wafer as a mentor. We met back in 2018, but leaned heavily on each other in the early days of the pandemic, mourning, sharing best practices, fast money movements to organizations, and looked to the future. Shonda McDill joined the Heinz Endowments in October 2017 as a program officer for arts and culture, promoting the strength and vitality of a suite of Pittsburgh-based artists and arts organizations through general operating support and a programming portfolio comprised of the Investing in Professional Artists Program, the Small Arts Initiative, the Advancing Black Arts in Pittsburgh Initiative, and the Foundation's first cross-programmatic social justice initiative, Just Arts, which she helped to found. Shonda has more than a decade of nonprofit executive and arts management experience working for theater companies across the country. In 2006, she also founded Damascus Theater Collective, a nonprofit service oriented collective of artists and administrators who produce theatrical projects that share stories of the marginalized. This conversation was recorded on May 1st, 2020. cocktail are you ready i'm ready (laughs) (laughs) um so um so uh, i'd love for you to start by introducing yourself however you like my name is shonda mcdill i um grew up on long island as a part of a large family although i was the only child i am a bonus mom to four children, a wife. Um, I love God, love exploring life at the intersection of art and culture, um, particularly the Black experience, figuring out how to best manifest all that God has put within me. Mm. Thank you. What were your days like before this crazy moment, right? COVID-19. And what would you say your days are like now? My days before COVID, minus uh, those who are dying that are 
yeah. close to me um, were very similar in terms of the concerns and the conversations, I think. I think a lot of my conversations and a lot of my work and a lot of my time was spent trying to figure out how to best serve artists, how to best help them to live lives where art is not a privilege, but something that they can experience as a right, something that they can, um, particularly artists of color, can live and work in frequently without having to sacrifice being a wife or sacrifice being a husband or sacrifice being a partner or sacrifice um, all financial security. Um, because the economics and, and the capitalism in this country to me still make it so that many people can only experience a career in the arts if they come from privilege. So I feel like a lot of the conversations, although they've been exacerbated because of the pandemic, were similar for me. It was always about equity. It was always about producing art. It was always about people's lives being changed as a result and always a care and concern for how can people actually live lives in this purpose as they pursue their craft and their and, and what they were meant to be doing. So what has changed, I feel, are the number of people willing to engage in that conversation now mm. and the pace at which the conversation is happening for the purpose of trying to do something quickly. Can you tell us, um, just to put this into context, like when you talk about your work, um, mm -hmm. what you do that is considered work? Like what is it? So I am, I guess at, at this point, I'm in the field of philanthropy. Um, and um, my work right now con is, uh, is comprised of uh, managing a suite of grants and a certain amount of money uh, for the Heinz endowments and distributing, redistributing that, those funds. When I think about what my life's work is, I think my life's work is always about providing space for stories to be told of marginalized groups who find themselves without a voice to have a place where they can tell their story without it fully having to be always contextualized within someone else's experience. So I'm going to talk about Shay a lot because she's mm -hmm. who brought us together. Um, mm -hmm. When I was talking to Shay about mentorship um, and sort of like the ways in which we contextualize where she is in her work life, she distinguished between like a job and work, right? Like mm -hmm. job being like the thing that she does to, for an exchange to be able to like live the life that she wants to do live. And then like the work being like the desires of the heart and how mm -hmm. it plays out into like the concerns, how you name them, right? Like mm -hmm. really wanting to provide a space for stories to be told um, for people without a place to tell it. So um, just, I, it's, Mm -hmm. I hear it echoing in, in your response, even, mm -hmm. even now. So thank you. No, thank you. And thank you for talking about her because I think clearly if I had to pick someone who has been a part of my trajectory and my career and like a guiding force forever, um, it would be Shay. Um, so I think, yeah, there, it, it's not surprising to me that that's what she said and that that is 
why she was someone that I was like, I will follow you. You want me to be in Pittsburgh? I will come to Pittsburgh. Okay, you're in LA. I'm in LA. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. she, she has the ability to bring people cross country. Everybody doesn't do that for everyone. Right. Yeah. right? No, it's so true. I mean, I think that, like, I, I tell few people, there is literally, other than my husband right now, um, the only other person that can say, hey, Delana, I need, and I'm like, when do you need me to be there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, just like you said, flew cross-country to LA for two, <laughs> two things, because Shay picked up the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and not even with a demanding voice. Like, that's what <laughs> killed me. It's just like, it's like, Shay has never placed a demand on me. She has never raised her voice at me. Nope. She has never attacked me or accused me. Um, even, and that's not to say we've never had misunderstandings, which is that even as I'm talking to you now, what I'm realizing is Shay never used her power to convince me to do anything. She's not someone who brokered her power. She's not mm-hmm. someone who ever raised her voice. She's not someone who ever um, attacked me. She never belittled me. She never, her style and her way and the fact that she can get people to, to, who want to come and help and assist and do that without ever having to do some of the things that people in the world say are necessary for people who are in these positions yep. is probably what I find to be most admirable. Oh, love letters to Shay. Um, <laughs> yes. So this is a question that I've been asking uh, the folks that I've been in conversation with lately. And even now, as we think about like things that are essential or non-essential and so forth, like how, mm. what do you think about the role of art and culture? This then and now thing is like just giving me a headache, not in your asking <laughs> it, of course, but just like, <laughs> I'm just being real, like with yeah. something that I'm wrestling with today, which is just like. Um, as all of us know, when you have to prepare for a board meeting or a major thing when you're presenting, you have to synthesize everything that you're thinking and your work and your job requirements and try to figure out what it is you're trying to translate to a group of people who you don't spend much time with so that they really understand because they're going to make decisions, right? And so yeah. um, I find myself today in that position. And so some of these questions are just hitting differently when you're asking them, because I feel tangled by some of these, these tensions. We are right now about to repeat another cycle. Like I don't hear new conversations. And these things are important, relaxing the guidelines for reports, changing things to general operating. But I feel now is the time where we should be saying healthcare for all artists, policy, on like things that we know we've wanted that have not come to pass that we can now imagine because people are thinking about what the future is going to be like in a different way. And I fear our short memories. If we do not capture now, I'm, I'm, and again, the train has already left. There are already things being put in place. Yep. We will find ourselves back with these same conversations, which were the same conversations before COVID. To just say general operating even is not enough, for instance, because half of our portfolio at Heinz is general operating, but who's getting the general operating? What are the levels of investments? How do you determine and how do you hold accountable organizations for the things that you say are indicators of success if that is the way in which you determine 
how much to give people. How much does historical and systemic oppression and the reality that we know to be of this country's history impact how we make financial decisions within our portfolios and philanthropy or in any other space that we have to make decisions in? Or how much do we continue to blame those who are victimized by these systems and expect them somehow to leap over 400 and something years? and arrive at the same place as other people. I hope I'm answering the question, but I just feel like before or after some of these things are the same. What is not the same is that people are losing their lives. Of course, is people being on unemployment in the numbers that they are. What I think needs to be addressed is this difference that we have in society around the humanities versus social services. I think Mm -hmm. I'm seeing it even more clearly right now. Um, I've always felt that art is not asserted in the humanities until there's a problem. But in terms of really having a good grasp on the importance of arts and humanities at the same level that we uh, put other pieces of society, we don't see it that way. And I don't have the answer what that should look like. But what I do know is that as people in the arts, I think we have a fear of art becoming utilitarian in some way. And so we shy away from some of the things that would help us to assert it as important as other fields. But if we truly say it changes lives, we, we have some work to do to, to convince some other people, even if they know it instinctually. You just said a whole lot. Um, <laughs> but I, love I told it. you I'm working through some stuff. Yeah. I'm working through some stuff. No, I mean, I think that, you're right. I mean, of course, you're right. Um, like <laughs> this idea of like this fear of art becoming utilitarian or even like the need for art to become utilitarian in mm. order to justify investment, right? Mm. Have like on the side of like the artist, they don't want it to be utilitarian. And on the side of like, we'll call it philanthropy or the people with the resources they're like until it becomes utilitarian then Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. you know I'll withhold a certain percentage or all of my resources Mm -hmm. because I feel like even if we wanted to sort of put a stake in the ground for this moment quote unquote like I feel like this moment needs x right and like Mm -hmm. someone has decided that maybe art and culture doesn't intersect in that x right Mm -hmm. without it being quote-unquote utilitarian so Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i i think that even before this moment i've been wrestling with ways in which the field hasn't and when Mm -hmm. i say the field i mean like the arts and culture side even though i kind of straddle both worlds right as a funder Mm -hmm. and an um arts worker um but I feel like the field hasn't yet wrestled with its own narrative to yeah, be able to mm-hmm. make that transition, even in a moment of crisis. I mean, in a, in a moment of crisis, when the people with the resources are requiring certain things. Now, mm-hmm. you know, we can talk about why the people who are requiring certain things are requiring certain things. But, you know, if two people are speaking two different languages, they're like never going to come to an agreement on something. No. Yes. (laughs) And this is, this is, and this is what's making this interesting in this time. And I will say it is interesting to listen. So the first thing I wanted to do, of course, was talk to every, all of my grantees, every single one. I'm like, I need to get on the phone and I want a conversation. And we've talked about this before. Yeah. At first, 
that was a foreign idea. But I'm like, how else will we know exactly? So, so the first point I want to make is that there is a disconnect between those who have the power to distribute resources and those who are being served. And because of that disconnect, there is not a real understanding of what the need is, or even really, to me, sometimes real authentic conversations around what the need really is. Because then you come to the table and you tell me what you think I need to hear that you need so that you can get the money to do with it what you really need, instead of being able to have and make the case as a field that certain things are core values necessary for the production of the art that we say we value, right? But you can't value the art and not the people and then anticipate that you will have systems that support the people. It it will not make sense, right? So the other part is like, that's part one. And what is probably most frustrating to me today as, as I talk to you is that as I talk to different organizations, it's not that your need is not a real need. But when I think about your need in the context of other need that I'm hearing, I realize how disconnected the field is and how, I mean, what the word selfish came to my mind just now, but I guess I would say how no, self yeah. selfish, right? It, people are. And it's like, it's, I don't blame you for saying this is a need for you, but one, is that need necessary for you to fulfill the mission, or is that need necessary for you to uphold a history that you've experienced and known to be what your existence should be? Does um, that mean? Yeah. I think that, like, um, the space in which I'm occupying right now, purely for arts organizations... Mm-hmm. Not necessarily for the artists. Yep. But when I think about like fully I feel right? you. and like what that means, like putting, you know, kind of like actually not thinking about the art, but thinking about the organization that make that distributes the art, right? The, mm-hmm. the, to your point, um, that makes it accessible to an audience Mm -hmm. um and the people that run those organizations um that's the kind of like messy space that i've been really sitting in for multiple reasons but less so about the individual artists no i agree i agree with what you're saying and and so where i will say so my ooh child so where (laughs) where this in the trajectory of my kind of learning, this is where August Wilson's TCG speech comes in, right? The ground on which I stand, where he was like at Princeton, he was like, listen, we need black theaters. We need black directors. We need black, like I was in college, I think around that time when that, when the ground on which I stand came out. And it was like this proclamation that if he had a choice, he would be doing his plays in these institutions instead of maybe in Lord theaters to predominantly white audiences. Right. Mm-hmm. But it all has to do with what you're saying, which is who has access to buildings, who has access to the capital that would allow you to maintain a building, who has the, the, the trust of those who have money to then be able to manage these spaces where artists can work and organizations can thrive. And so I totally understand and it's part of the reason I was like oh I'm starting my own company like I'm not I don't even want to go work in a Lord theater even though as a black woman coming out of Yale there were offers of course right yeah but I was like I don't want to go in a Lord theater it's how I ended up with Shay at Cornerstone 
because I was like, who's in community? What theaters are well-known doing good work in community? The interesting thing was, although Cornerstone had an office, they didn't have a theater space, right? And I think it is tied um, to what you're saying, which is not only is there truly a financial structure that you sit yourself in when you have a space or when you grow to a certain level, but there's also kind of like an ethos that follows it too when you plant yourself in a brick and mortar building and um, and then encounter all the struggles that you have to encounter to keep that thing going or even to reach a certain level of operating support uh, in order to keep the art going. So for me, I don't know. I, I also will say that even though I wasn't an institution, as a single artist who produced a musical in L.A. when I was very young, Shay was working with me on that, the money came from all Black investors. Mm-hmm that didn't know me well, and I didn't have to compromise to get that money. I just did, it was, you know, just kind of the way it happened. So my experience, I guess, is also partially that I don't have to ask people who oppress me to get money. Hmm. So do you feel like, so is that like a statement for the field? Like, you shouldn't, you meaning like a general you, shouldn't um, compromise to get the funding that you need, compromise and whatever, compromise or ask, quote unquote, the oppressor to get the money that you need? So there's complexity to the statement, (laughs) (laughs) of course. And so the complexity to the statement has to do with who the oppressor is, and it also has to do with what level of compromise we're talking about. I think that's, those are the two things that stand out most for me. Uh, One, because you can be being oppressed by someone who isn't white and who is of your own race. And I'm not, you know, I'm all for my race, but I'm just like, we have to be also honest about the effects of capitalism and the change of culture on that, which is uh, distinctly African culture or African-American culture. And this is where me having been a major in African and African-American studies comes in. Like, there is a Western culture, you know, and then, so I think that when we talk about how oppression works and how people in, embrace their culture and the true principles of it, um, some things we've adopted that are not necessarily um, our culture, but they're actually the culture of those who've oppressed us. Mm. And we, and we uh, take them on uh, and they are not uniquely ours. I will digress and just say (laughs) that I think that, you know, I am saying that I think we have to be careful um, about and and be really true to the beauty of what Black culture is, which is broad and is, and it cannot just be defined singularly or in a myopic way. But I also think we um, should not compromise. I don't think we should compromise. I mean, I'm grateful, for instance, August Wilson did, right? We might not have seen his work and be able to celebrate it, for instance. But I also feel, but if he didn't go to Lord Theaters. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like would I have much rather there that I owned a theater and he could come there and have that experience of telling that story to an audience that was Black who, you know, yes. Yeah. So I, I think, like, this is the whole age-old argument that's really complex but it is these are the kind of things I wrestle with in my mind and do you wrestle with that like when you go to the place in which you quote-unquote clock in and clock out right like your employer yes um I do (laughs) um but I've also spent a lot of time in predominantly white institutions so 
you know, it's almost like I kind of know the landscape. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't make it any easier, but I know the landscape. And I also think that it goes back to this job versus work piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a reason why I take jobs in certain places. Usually it's for economic exchange. And because I agree, I mean, me, who I am, I try to live seamlessly. So I'm not going to work somewhere where I don't believe in the values and the principles. I actually believe in the values and the principles when I read them of the Heinz family. And when I, I actually am like, okay, I agree with you in this way. Yeah. And so this is a place I would want to be because of the principles you hold. But there are just racial dynamics everywhere, right? They, like racism is just real and power dynamics are real and um, ageism is real and how philanthropy works is real. There's a reason why they say black people like staying for three years, I think it is, before they exit philanthropy. Uh, I think Abfi did a study the the dynamic of white men who lead majority institutions having to talk to me about their money is not something that I think they enjoy at all. <laughs> like, and and there are people, and I'm I this is my assumption of why, but I feel like there are people who would rather consistently try to talk to my boss or even talk to a male. So some people will go over my boss, who is a female and try to talk to another male because of just power structures and who they think they should answer to and who they think they has the right to tell them yes or no regarding certain or regarding money. So, um, yeah, I, and I don't, and for that reason, I never know how long I'm going to stay. I enjoy what I do, but with, but without the ability to make change that I think is necessary, I know that it can't be a permanent situation. Right. Cause it feels like, I mean, based off of, what you just said a little bit ago, right? Like this idea of compromise, don't, you don't, you never felt like you had to compromise for your artwork. Like, I wonder how you might make space for, I could imagine, this is me projecting, but Mm -hmm. make space for a type of compromise in that space. Or do you feel like that? I feel like the compromises I make in this space First of all, I can't really think like when I'm like, do do I ever I don't feel I don't show up as my whole self at my job. Right. The comp- I will say the compromise I make is the emotional duress I have to endure. <laughs> so I don't feel the compromises around my honesty in the room, speaking up about things. In fact, I think in most predominantly white institutions, there is this weird thing where they want to hear the black people tell them the truth about things that are wrong. It's mm-hmm. almost like we welcome you to tell me these things and I'm going to feel terrible and then we'll try to fix it. And then you get angry, you scream at us, you'll be okay. You get your paycheck, you come back. Like there's like a system that I feel is just like it functions in that, in this world. Right. Mm -hmm. I think to step off and say like you did, I'm going to, I'm disassociating myself from the emotional duress of this. Right. So I guess I'm, what I'm saying is I'm not stepping into this situation feeling like I'm compromising my truth or my integrity or, um, nor do I feel ineffective. I feel like I'm able to make certain changes. I am able to make decisions. It's the degree to the, the degree of the change that I am constantly measuring against the duress to make the change. That I don't, that's where I'm like, is it worth it? Yeah. Are there things you wish were different about, we'll just say capital P philanthropy. It doesn't have to necessarily be at Heinz. Like, at Heinz, (laughs) yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, I actually, 
actually, and I will say, I actually enjoy the team that I work with at Heinz, but they're, it's the same everywhere. I, I mean, I haven't worked in philanthropy long enough necessarily to know how it is. And it's also very different being in like a community foundation than like a family foundation. Like I'm learning these like differences because mm-hmm. I'm only what, two and a half years in to philanthropy. So um, you're on your way out? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it sometimes. I do feel like it, like, oh, no, like any day I could just wake up and be like, nah, not no more. You know, there's there's great opportunity. That's what I feel, which keeps me there. Like it like there is great opportunity to shift things if I'm able to to do so. What Um, are some of those conditions? The conditions for what by which some of that wouldn't happen. But um, the conditions under which you said you could shift things if you're able. So I'm saying like what, what's oh. like, what are good conditions for shifting things? So this is like an answer to the original question you, answered, you asked me about philanthropy and an answer to this specific question, which is people's will and understanding, I think. So the funny story that goes to this, and I may have mentioned this to you when we talked another time, but re- this week as I was preparing for the board meeting, my boss was like, you have one slide, like you get, you know, one slide. And I'm, you know, one, I was a little like, because frustrated because I'm doing a lot of work that I feel like is not seen as a lot of work. So it was like, even though it's known, I don't really feel like people acknowledge it as a lot of work. And maybe because I'm dealing with the most disenfranchised oftentimes as a part of my portfolio, I'm dealing with the small mid-sized organizations. I'm dealing with advancing black art in Pittsburgh and the artists in the city I'm dealing with. So because they're already like a, like on the outskirts, it's like, it felt like that one slide was even just more like a crushing blow to like what I, you know, could, could offer because there's so much, I was just like one slide. So then I was just like, it made me, it triggered me to just think about everything. And it triggered me to think about philanthropy. And it triggered me to think about these positions of power that we are quote unquote seated in, in these, in these buildings and how we're seeing things. And it was just like, so I sent back my one slide and I was like, if I can only have one slide, this is what I'd like. And it was the serenity prayer. <laughs> it was like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, I thought you were joking. And I was like, no, I'm not. If, if I can only have one slide, this is what the slide I want. But I understand if in the context of this board meeting and all these, you know, different ideas about what professionalism means, if that can't fly, yeah. Um, but now my job is to contextualize what I'm trying to say about that, which is an issue of control. It's an issue of us having courage. You know, the serenity prayer doesn't say that you have to have the ability to change or the time. It says you have to accept or you have to have the courage and then the wisdom to know the difference, right? For me, the question for philanthropy right now, what prevents me from knowing if change is possible, what challenges me about philanthropy over the years as I'm seeing it is the lack of courage to make decisions that will actually bring forth the change we say we want. Mm. Even the courage to face the racism is courage. So we talk about it, but do we have the courage to make different choices that would eradicate it? Mm-hmm. Well, but no, if the whole point is, and I understand the simplicity of like, no, if your whole point is to keep it in place. But um, (laughs) I mean, that's just like the obvious answer. But um, 
I guess maybe I have to, in my heart, I don't believe everybody thinks. I just think some people are more comfortable than others with it in place. And so they make less effort to change it. And there's a part of me that goes to that kind of more radical conversation we started with, which is, I don't care if you, this is me in my 20s. I don't care if you never change it because I'm going to work with Shea at Cornstone. I don't care if you never change the Lord Theater because I'm not going to ever be a managing director. (laughs) Well, so what I was going to ask just now was like, do you think it's about like, mm, when you think about like history and the spaces out of which systems and the things that we have today were founded, right? Like, do you think philanthropy was ever created to answer these questions? No. (laughs) So we're trying to ask, you know, the system to like do something that is, it was never created to do. But that's our whole existence as black people in America. (laughs) Say more this whole system of America was never meant for me to live as a humane citizen amongst other people. I was, you know, my ancestors, our ancestors were brought here as enslaved Africans. Like it was never, the system that was set up was never intended to acknowledge me as a human being. So if that's the case, then what, I mean, it's like Marcus Garvey up in the seats. Like I might as well go on and like, where am I going? Because everything and I say this all the time because people have asked me like well why take the money or give the money back or and I'm just like everyone has to make that decision on their own but how I feel is if I start destroying everything around me that was never built with me in mind or intended to serve me for the benefit of my joy and happiness and purpose I could not exist in this world Mm -hmm. because nothing was built with me in mind but in terms of America and the system by which this was set up and all of those pieces, I feel like I would burn everything. Why don't you? Great question. <laughs> I guess I feel as though it is not for me to burn everything. It's for me to, I'm more concerned about building new things for people to experience new things in a way that that I didn't get to experience. And I guess this is where the rub is, which is do I have to burn, destroy this? When I say Tyler Perry, I know like it could go into a whole conversation, (laughs) but but when I say it, I mean in terms of how, what he's done in Atlanta versus doing it in Hollywood, what he has built without having to build it in the context of, what others said was the Mecca. And I respect that. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's evidence that I can, you can do it your way. My, and I don't have to, the system is not predicated. There are principles that are at work that I feel are not solely controlled by those in power. Um, one of the things that, as you were just talking about, like, as we were talking about, like the burning down piece, right? Mm-hmm. And when I think about like, where my mind has drifted in this moment Um, and mostly like this moment coincides with me moving back to my hometown of Columbia, Mm -hmm. South Carolina um, and really embracing in a way that like my younger self didn't want to embrace like what it meant to be a black American and quite Mm -hmm. frankly um, 
you know, explicitly a descendant of the institution of American slavery. Mm -hmm. um, and even more recently, in terms of my own genealogy, like, of land workers, right? Like, my mm -hmm. grandparents, even though they moved into the suburbs, continued to work, you know, their residential quarter or third plot of property like it was a farm. And so when I think about like, just kind of like who and what made me and what it took to survive all the things in which my people, my like literal people survived being, you know, in the deep South always for their mm -hmm. life, a story that I don't have having lived 13 mm -hmm. years in New York. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about is this idea of like, you can't plant the same garden in the same piece of land. Right. Mm -hmm. And like sometimes it is necessary to burn something down in order to have a better crop or even a different crop later. Because like the chemicals of that burn, mm -hmm. right? Like the chemistry of it, like changes fundamentally the ground mm -hmm. and provides a different environment that wasn't there prior right so like mm -hmm. when you were saying like when we were talking about the slash and burn i was like well there is a natural cycle that requires a burning of things and like mm -hmm. is that now whatever now is <laughs> no I, I love what you're saying some people say it is now right um I don't think now, and this goes back, and, I, and I'm not um, prejudiced with the way I'm going to use this. Like, I don't think that now and then thing is any more prevalent to me than now or then when I was in college and felt the same way. Yeah. Like, it's not a time more for burning than it was 10 years ago or five years ago or in 99 when I graduated from college. Like, I always felt that there was a need to recreate and do something different. And I'm not saying that burning is not necessary. I'm just saying to me, everybody has a different part of the process. So, you know, one person plants a seed, one person waters, somebody else might get the increase from that land, right? That's like yeah. biblical. And yep. so the reality is I'm just not a burner. I'm just not about having to destroy somebody else's stuff to build my own. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that it feels to me that like, somebody else set a fire like shit is burning right so it's not right I just, this is what i'm saying this is what i'm saying i'm like <laughs> i can feel like it needs to be on fire my point is and this is so helpful to me because i'm just like i'm not like I'm, I'm not like blind like but to me the world's been on fire so it's like when will we ever not in a fire mm -hmm. I, I just for me i'm like I don't think I have like these good answers or that I'm even trying to steer it. I just think I've believed this for a really long time. And I think when you've sat with these questions, I didn't just start in the field of arts. I didn't just start, like I've been doing this since I was 14. Yeah. When I was 14, my first job was using theater to go around and teach young people, other teens about HIV and AIDS. Cause my mother didn't want to teach me about sex. So she sent me there. I learned about it, learned about HIV and AIDS, which at that time was really prevalent, learned about protection and absence, and then was, was paid to use theater to teach other people. For me, art has always meant use it for the betterment of community, for the betterment of understanding, for teaching purposes, for the purpose of being able to live a better life. Going into that, what I'm saying is my people are already infected and dying. Yeah. Right? Like, it's not like... I didn't create that. Um, 
we were already born into a legacy that was X number of years behind in wealth. We were already born into racism. We were already born into these things that exist. In college, you know, um, Antezaki Shange came and taught and directed us, and Augusta Bawal and August Wilson was in residence, and I would hear them talking, Clinton Turner Davis, and they would say things like, you know, well, one day, or we're going to, and so at the crossroads, right? And I'm just like, what does that mean? Like, right now, we need something, right? And so at the crossroads, at the crossroads, for me, there's a moral question that is at stake at that crossroads as, as well, I guess, is where I'm trying to go. And everyone has to not only challenge the system to try, in my mind, not everyone does, but I am called to not only ch- challenge the system in the way that I'm challenging it, the movement has leveled, mm-hmm. but to also make sure that I can remain in a place morally where I feel I have done what I'm supposed to do. Now, morally doesn't mean Martin Luther King wrote from the Birmingham jail. Like at some point in time, things that were considered legal, you know, people had to go against in order to get the rights that we have. So when I'm saying moral, I'm not talking about like uh, in the sense of like a legal established governing body systems way of moral. I just mean, you have to know in yourself, and this goes back to that compromise question and what do you burn and who burns, and you have to know in yourself what you believe you're put on, called to do. And yeah. to me, like I said, it's already on fire. In the space of like philanthropy being a part of, you know, philanthropy always burning, philanthropy burning today, philanthropy burning tomorrow, like thinking about what it means that there are groups that don't approach the crossroads with a moral compass, right, which still continues to deepen the space in which you say black folk occupy right so if there are you know 75 million dollars that are now in the atmosphere that weren't necessarily in the atmosphere yesterday because of a burning that happened that neither of us started so i think if i'm hearing you correctly i'm just going to restate it to make sure that i understand you are basically saying Everything's on fire. These injustices, this racism, these things already exist for Black people. They have existed. We, they existed. We come to this place where um, philanthropy um, is deep, is allowing the deepening of that burning. Yep. If we are at this place where there is a system called philanthropy and it is allowing the deepening of the burning, um, what is our role? morally at that station in order to save those who are most impacted by the fire. Yep. Okay. So there's two things, you know, there's people who run from it, run from the fire and those who run toward it. And for me, (laughs) there is a level of any black person in philanthropy has run toward the fire because the level of duress and trying to, and I don't, and I don't, I am not comparing the emotional duress that I experience when I get my check to the duress of artists who don't have a check. Yeah. But what I am saying is there is a level of the the challenge that exists and how deep you're willing to go into it and deal with whatever you deal with in the fire in order to try to help those who are in the built the burning edifice. And so for me, 
you cannot escape the same racism and philanthropy in any other aspect and area of our, of any of our lives. So in other words, if I wasn't working in philanthropy, I still would be experiencing these same systemic issues no matter where I was working. And I think we've kind of agreed to that, which is that it's everywhere. It's prevalent because of the way that the country was built. It is a sense of running toward it by being able to say, again, this is the difference between job and work. Yeah. <laughs> Me running into this is so that I may build something that is not on fire for someone else to have to, to be able to experience, right? So the, it's a means to the end. It's not where I see myself being like, oh, I'm in philanthropy and I'm going to get comfy here and I see myself being here forever. At least while I'm here, I could try to direct this towards what I think and bend it towards what is right. If this is the space I'm going to get a job in. Because the reality is I don't even know that I would be an arts administrator if the field of of theater was fair. I started off as an actress, and I, and I don't mean to simplify the conversation, but I just want to talk about the different layers. Like I went, I started working in, in the arts administration field to feel like, okay, at least I can be close to the art. I have a gift in terms of being able to do administrative work and organization and these different pieces and, and, and marketing and PR. So if I can, I can utilize those while I try to pursue this other thing as yeah. an actress or as a director, right? So my thought was strategy, okay, I will work as an arts administrator so that I can be more selective of what I do with my passion in, in acting and directing, which then turned into, you know what? Maybe this, I'm much more rather like change the field for everybody than just for myself. The injustice follows, whether it's in the halls of a specific place or if it's just in the way things are structured and therefore you have to create something different in order to make something new come about. And I, and I don't know, like, I'm willing to go keep to try to take another layer deeper from not answering. Um, well, I, I think probably it was my, the way I situated it. Cause where I was thinking was just truly like, again, staying in this moment and thinking about mm -hmm. like, when I say this moment, like, whatever today is, Friday, May 1st, 2020, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, our day-to-day -day life is still impacted by COVID-19. Yep. And um, there are, you know, just hard facts, right? There are mm -hmm. emergency dollars that are floating yep. throughout the United States right now. Mm -hmm. And there are mechanisms built in the old world whatever old world we call it, right? Old world mm -hmm. yesterday, it could be 100 years ago, 400 years mm -hmm. ago. The mechanisms to obtain that emergency dollars are still built in the old world. Um, and thinking about like what it means for groups who have been existing in this unequal environment to come to to now both be coming to the same well right <laughs> in a way yep. in which maybe in january there was a secret well <laughs> and yep. there still may yep. be a secret well but like right yep. now everyone's at the watering hole right right like everyone is trying to get these dollars but like uh, been tracking it and haven't seen mm -hmm. that the dollars have been distributed equitably, right? Um, yeah. 
And so I was just trying to like stay in that space, right? Like, okay. Yeah. Well, let me, okay. We went very different. So I will stay in that <laughs> space and say, no, I mean, you know, I think it's, this is why I think I've been wrestling. And I was really, this is why I wanted to be honest with you at the top to say, as I prepare for this board meeting, yes, what we're walking into is to talk about where these dollars went, right? There's yeah. X number of dollars. These dollars went here. But the reality is that the decisions that are being made are because of social implications. Mm-hmm. Whether that's, constructs that the people who make the decisions have in their brains or it's the ones that have been prevalent in terms of how money is spent in philanthropy or that is specific to the program officers and how they assess need based on their understanding of it. It is all primarily, in my opinion, being guided by deep social implications relative to race and poverty and economics and all of those pieces. And so that's kind of like how we got into this other place. But, but what I think is like, there are some organizations who are doing a good job. I feel like at Heinz, we were like, listen, we, we want to give this money uh, for the emergency fund. We want to make sure that it goes to teaching artists, knowing that a lot of in this city, a lot of um, teaching artists are people of color. We want to make sure that 50% of the money goes to, you know, the Opportunity Fund just put out um, information that talks about the fact that at least 43% of their money was made, was with a, distributed with a racial equity lens, and they made sure it was going to black and brown communities. Like, um, there is this war that I see happening between larger institutions, to your point, who are at the water and home than these smaller institutions. And it is um, a critical time to make decisions in a way, I think, that could be a step towards making things more equitable, not only now, but in the future. But that requires a different kind of constitution and mind frame that I don't know everyone has or even or has the courage to have and this goes back to what I was saying about the serenity prayer like do you have it do you want to have it do you have the courage to keep it and do can we make decisions and actionable items based on what we know to be true because fundamentally and this is where it goes back to social implications do we even believe what is true to be true because I believe there are a lot of people who could say they would be wrong, but who would say, what does 400 years ago have to do? Why is the, is the economic disparity the reason why this black theater company can't keep their doors open <laughs> and can't keep that building? I know why that's absurd. Yep. But if you don't understand why that's absurd, one, because you just don't know history, or two, because you just might have be, be racist and don't believe in the reality of the impact of these things on a group of people or three because you just don't care because it's not affecting you because you where you go to see art has a building has money so you don't really understand why it's connected to you anyway like there's all multiple reasons why it could be where why it is but but to fundamentally answer your question this is the frustration i feel right now today on friday which is we cannot become overnight who we have not been we cannot begin to make decisions overnight. We can, but I don't see that. I, I am sad today. And probably that is like the most clear cut emotion that I feel and truth as I'm like saying it, I'm getting emotional. Like I am sad because I don't see that we will 
change yeah. how we understand what had what where we are in this world in this moment, even with a crisis of this magnitude. So, yes, there's hope. Yes, there is. People could. Yes, there's a chance. Yes, program officers that I respect, people like you who have you know who have taken the opportunity to say I'm going to take these resources, I'm going to fight on behalf of others for these resources and, and direct them in the way that they should go. Yeah, those are glimmers of hope for me. Yeah. But the reality is like, you know, when a check, when I can say I really would like to put this amount of money in the hands of this organization and it's abnormal and it's approved and it's not something that has been done traditionally, that's a win. But at the But on the scale that we need it, we need a whole lot more people to relinquish control, a whole lot more people empowered to understand the importance of everyone's survival in the context of this, this ecosystem and ecology functioning well, the, a whole lot more people to make some different choices mm-hmm. in order for this to become quote unquote equitable. Or One of the things that I've been thinking about is like the ways in which organizations have been positioning themselves and making like decisions that impact people's lives mm-hmm. based off of like a tomorrow that no one knows what's yep. there. Right. So yep. like I'm thinking of the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, who has a $3.6 billion endowment and yet is still slashing staff. Right. No. I'm thinking yep. of folks who are like, you know, going to that watering hole that we were just talking about, asking for their reserves to be preserved. Yep. Um, and like what it means to be like, 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 I'm just like, I can't understand that mindset right now. Like, and this kind of goes back to the idea of burning, but not necessarily like if there is like, if there is some huge potential uncertainty as there almost always has been but now it's amplified of like even what november looks like right let's pick a non-political month even what october looks like (laughs) (laughs) like if if we can't even like say what october looks like then like why not use the resources for the today and 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 i'll even like bring it to I've been using the parable of the sower now like mm-hmm. you know like the five talents I mean yes, <laughs> not yes. my Octavia Butler I mean also relevant yes it's at the crossroads <laughs> this is exactly my point you got culture there you got faith there you got which, which way are you gonna go yes um but you know like I, it was like the person the one who saved the talents Right, buried it, yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm just offering some other points of exchange. Um, so, yeah, what I think is interesting about what you're saying, and th- and this is like, I'll try to not be, you know, I've enjoyed us kind of like digging in, but I also want to, to have understanding. This notion of, uh, one, that someone eating as an artist is somehow less important than... Uh, someone not spending their cash reserves right so in other words like uh, so I'm not in agreement with that at all right and this is something that I've said several times like I'm not concerned that you it's not a penal it's not penalizing you that you have a cash reserve it's the fact that cash reserves were put in place for moments like this 
Yep. So you should be using it for emergency funding, not using emergency funding that is meant for people who don't have it. Um, I think very clearly that um, in terms of spending everything, um, I have a challenge with that. Although I did recently ask, like, I'm like, you know, is there more money? Is there a way to make a decision to spend more? And this is something that is being discussed in foundation circles, as I'm sure you're well aware and are bringing it up. I wasn't aware. I was just curious. It just kind of came out of me being like, well, wait a minute. If this money is off of interest, is it possible for people to be like, we're going to give more money. We're just going to take and give more. And it is if that would be their decision. But I also respect the fact that we're only 50 days into this thing or what, like, I'm shocked that people are like, I can't take it anymore. And like, trying to run out there, they can't find peace. And it's just like, I'm going outside. And we are just at the beginning of whatever we, this is. So if this is going to be something over a longer period of time, for me, I'd rather have more money to be able to say, okay, we have a plan where when you come back, we'll be able to help more, but um, not at the expense of anyone losing their life or not at the expense of, expense of anyone not having basic needs met, but at the expense of the fact that we all might have to readjust what, what our art practice looks like in terms of planning and seasons and all of that stuff. Yeah, I think at that level, there's a place where you can pause and hold and say, we're in this for the long haul and we want to be able to show up for you at, at the Heinz endowments. We want to be able to have money in 2021 when you come back. And the only way for us to do that is to make sure that we take care of the most important things where my concern comes in is how we define most important things. How have you guys been defining it? And that is something that, again, as I prepare for this board uh, meeting, I feel like uh, we are wrestling with. I don't know that we have a clear, we've established a working group and we've established some things that are helping us all, not only at Heinz, but across foundations in Pittsburgh to define what is most important. What do people need most? Talking to the field, figuring out what the needs are. Um, so we don't right now have a list of priorities, although for sure, uh, and I'm saying that within creativity. Heinz as a whole has come up with uh, priorities at the top of which are basic needs, at the top of which is um, black and service to black and brown communities, at the top of which is um, making sure that we secure the um, organizations that we've supported over time and not just abandon them in this hour. So, so there is a list of priorities that Heinz as a whole has, but even, you know, within each portfolio, you then have to decide, well, if I have 10 grantees and, and I only have X amount of money yeah. and three of them are saying this, ideally the, the, the things that have gone from the top translate into each portfolio. But as we know, with any organizational structure, that becomes a challenge right? Because you have to try to make sure everyone's aligned and everyone's making the same decisions around those principles and values. And to me, to me, that's the work. Yeah. I want to turn our last like little bit together. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was going to like say, tell me about the time we met, right? <laughs> like, um, which was really like me being Daylana, which is to say like challenging, um, I think in a panel yeah <laughs> of probably folks who were not used to this is my perception used yeah. to like an outsider coming in and being like 
but the, uh, why are we doing this thing? Why are yep. we choosing this thing? <laughs> yep. Um, um, I mean, I'm grateful to, to Shay for the introduction. You know, I asked her for panelists. And so, again, being able to say, um, who has this wealth of knowledge, information about art, expertise, who is... Um, who also can come from a network, a trusted network, who also can be a black woman, who can, who can represent um, not only themselves, but be in a city where, you know, that is technically and has been said to be the worst place for black women to live in the United States. How can I find someone Oof. who, like you, to come and give money, like distribute this wealth to, who I know is going to then either redistribute it or use it in a good way, and then help and benefit the artists who are here and bring in a, a, a frame of mind that would benefit those here, right? So again, this is a positive piece of being. And so when Shay, you know, she could have said, anybody, I'm going to trust her judgment. She gave me two names. Yours was one. Super grateful that you came for that panel. Um, at the time when you came, even though our president had been talking about a just Pittsburgh and equity principles, we really didn't have an equity kind of agenda yet that was like on our website. It actually was in development. So it was in the news and in the press and he was out front with it, but um, we hadn't really developed the inner workings of what it would look like and how it would play out in our portfolios. So you walked into kind of, a <laughs> <laughs> you walked into a situation where we were being called on the carpet. We had already changed our applications. We were asking people how they were applying equity and what they were doing what their representation on their board looked like, what their like really deep questions that some people never had to answer before. And people were not happy about it. I remember being tagged on Facebook <laughs> by people who were complaining, like, why is this a part of this now? And is it being judged by whether or not I'll get my award and all of these things. So when you came in, uh, I was ecstatic because I knew that what you what you were doing was aligned with the with what where we were headed as an organization, even if we weren't there yet. I knew that you were going to be able to be in a room with other people who some of whom shared the values that that equity is a fundamental part of all the decisions we make and should not be an add on. Um, but I also knew that some people don't quite hold yeah. that to be true, and so. Um, so you were amazing because you came in, you spoke truth. You also understand and understood things about the process of grant making that even I didn't understand at that time and panels and how they work and the power dynamics that go in into that in the room and how sometimes, you know, the, the long and the short game, all these different things that happen in conversations and in relationship with people around some of these issues and so and topics and aspirations of equity. And so, um, so anyway, you came and did what you did, you know, you, you made sure that you made strong and important and aligned decisions. And I think had a tremendous impact on what the outcomes were. And, and, uh, and to me, I was pleased because you cannot, you know, what it, you can't hide a light. You know what I'm saying? So when yeah. you walked in, 
it doesn't matter. If you try to put it under a bowl, you try to, it doesn't matter. You're going to illuminate. Truth is going to show forth. And that, to me, is what happened when you walked in a room. And it was a breath of fresh air. And, um, and I tried my best to always have panel members who can do that. And sometimes just in the sense of you speaking the truth frees other people to speak it openly as well. Yes, now everybody speaks about equity and, and blackness and mm-hmm. all of these pieces, but it hasn't always been like that. And so, and we're literally only talking about two years ago. Okay. So this is what, <laughs> it's like, we're not, you know, and you were on the panel about a year ago, right? So no, it was it 2018. 18. So yeah. this is what I'm saying. Like you were at a critical time where it was like the language was just really being, and you figure Pittsburgh again is like 30 years behind sometimes in some ways, and particularly relative to race, other places. So it was important. I mean, and I wasn't being reckless. I mean, clearly I'm bringing you into a safe space. I'm there. Like we've, we've established a safe space, but it's still no space is necessarily safe when you are the person uh, speaking truth that other people are not used to hearing. Yeah. I like take that as like, you know, your language and, and my language as well, like being called to do like, yeah, I like, can I feel like I'm drawn to scenarios and institutions and projects right at the moment when like they need someone to just be like this is the thing <laughs> yep yep <laughs> and I, yep. <laughs> you know yep. um and I think that like you know the ways in which my life is and that I consider myself to be quote-unquote ungoverned right like mm-hmm. being like an independent consultant like that I feel like my coming into a space and saying like this is the thing is kind of like in the words of our ungreat leader national leader mm-hmm. like like what is there to lose mm-hmm. what do I have to right. lose <laughs> right right other than like the truth I consider panel service in the you know cog of philanthropy actually to be a great privilege yeah um it can be a chore sometimes, um, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But like, if I can wrestle with a group of people and be like, this is who you're moving money to, like, that's an extreme privilege. And like, to mm-hmm. fight through that process for the things that I want to fight for, knowing mm-hmm. that, and here's the watering hole, and like imagery again, like knowing that we're all coming to the same space with our own like desires and wishes and prejudices. And, you know, if I'm coming into that space with black arts and black arts organizations in mind, like then that's the space I'm going to occupy. Right. Yeah. And like fight tooth and nail as much as I can to like see that through to the end Um, and it's been interesting to like take that stance and like be invited to spaces and folks sometimes thinking that they want that and then when they get it (laughs) they're like that's not actually what I wanted (laughs) yeah like no that's not what you know but the difference for me is like I don't see how that could ever be wrong like and and this is where it's like there's so much more that we could talk about and and there's so much more even that sometimes I feel vulnerable about saying but I am learning that I 
it's necessary. You know what I'm saying? It's necessary to for each of us to speak the truth as we see it, and even if because there can't be learning if you don't. And so at the end of the day, or or understanding, and at the end of the day, what I also knew was that you weren't going to come in, and this goes back to morality. This goes back to mm-hmm. I don't believe you were going to come in and just be like, this is a ter- this is terrible. <laughs> she but taught because, us better than that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But because. It's black. Um, we're going for it. You know what I'm saying? Right, it's like no. no, like that is. Shay did t- teach us better than that, and there <laughs> is an understanding of like what is right and wrong. I don't even want to say what's good and bad because that too can be subjective relative to art. Yep, but there yep. is something that is right and something that is wrong about the way in which you approach to do that work, and your intentions can still remain to make sure that as many black people are seen in a process as possible and are given what they should get. And so what I knew that I was getting from you was someone who truly did understand the art world, who truly had seen a broad scope, who truly did want the best for the black artists in Pittsburgh, who truly did understand the context within which they are working within certain disciplines and can connect it to what you've seen in other states and other countries, and then therefore make a decision that was best. And I didn't have to question whether or not you were going to look out and see things equitably because that is who you are. So the relief of that as a, as a program officer, (laughs) it's like a dream come true. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that's how we met. Then I had some stress and we went out afterwards and (laughs) I got to release it and talk because uh, to your point, everyone doesn't know how to handle that. And we were not as a, uh, institution used to managing panels, even the way that I manage them, which is to start sometimes with agreements, to start with talking about what uh, just Pittsburgh means, right? Because it's one thing to have it on an application, but they never mention it in a room. So when you bring it up, it automatically inserts it into decision-making processes if you are not someone who automatically looks at things with that lens. So, yeah. um, yeah. I mean, yeah. So whenever I enter into a panel space, like I let a few people talk and then I'm like, all right, so are we judging this grant on their ability to have access to a grant writer or are we like judging like the whole application? Right. And I think that like what was revelatory for me for that experience was how you had done. And I think I called it out in the space, but like how you had done the work of having churches represented as artistic site like sites of artistic exploration um and like i had never experienced that on a panel process before now there were some challenges right like i couldn't just push them forward just for the sake of like i was super excited of being them being um (laughs) but and because your process was such that anyone could get feedback from it, then I use the opportunity to provide feedback, right? Like for the applicants, but the ways in which you even just, as you say, new-ish into your job had already like changed an applicant pool. Right. In a way that I I had never seen before. (laughs) I appreciate it. It was not easy. Like just to get $900 to go table on a Sunday, for those who grew up in the black church, you know, like there's videos, there's announcements, there's bulletins and many <laughs> churches now, if they're mega churches, like monetize those things. Mm. So I was like, you know, listen, 
I can go sit for four Sundays yeah. in this month. I can have, we can have a grant commercial made and created with our information played in this 10,000 member sanctuary. We can um, have it in the bulletin. I know it would make a difference. And I'm like, can I, it was $900. But the challenge of getting that approved, and this goes back to what you're saying, like, and, but, but to me, I'm supposed to be there to do that work. We did it. Another art, the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council, Ann Mulgrave at the time was working there. She came with me to talk about their programs. Mm. And she wouldn't have normally come probably, you know, without me to this church that she had never experienced as a white woman, she was like, Honda, I didn't know I could come in here. And I was like, of course, you know what I'm saying? Like one is a place of worship, but two, like, so I think, and since then there have been groups that were a part of that, that we met that was, was, and it was an endless line. When I tell you, when we left there, we did not have voices. So it was not a lack (laughs) of interest. And to the other point that, that like, and this is a larger thing, we have to figure it out. Like if we talk about arts and culture, what is the culture part? And if we talk about culture, then if there are liturgical dancers dancing every Sunday in a church, if there are singers singing every Sunday in a church and doing concerts around town and in community, even though they may not be at the large theaters that we know, that is a part of a cultural life that we might not have, that some people may not have access to, but it is taking place. And it's sometimes more visible and more seen by the communities that you want to reach and say you don't have entree into, I'm grateful for what you shared about that. And it, and it did prove successful. There were groups that were awarded from that, um, even if not in the round that we were in, but in other rounds yeah, and other yeah, yeah. grant streams. So. Beautiful to hear. Oh man, we could be here forever. <laughs> we almost have been. Um, anything else about being a black woman? in philanthropy in 2020, um, a black woman, creatively minded person who also has an artistic practice in philanthropy in 2020, in friendship with other black women who were raised by Shea Wafer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. Now, I mean, part of me wants to, to, of course, I want to you know, again, just always thank her. And, and as I was talking to you today, just realize how grateful I'm, I am that even with any challenges that any relationship might encounter, I never felt traumatized by her in my life. I never, she was an experience that I had with a black woman that helped to mold and shape and propel and like was just supportive. And I feel like that's important for us to experience. Like this relationship is important for us, for me to experience with you and to constantly build those pieces because we all have that need. And there's just a space and a conversation that we can fill for each other that can't be filled elsewhere. And, um, but I also feel like oftentimes there's a lot of opposition um, that tries to divide. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm just grateful for her. I'm grateful for her introduction um to you and I guess I'm um you know I'm curious I I like learn I like hearing from you so I wouldn't want to end with anything other than to say I'm curious if there was a question you wanted me to rest to think about from departing from this conversation what would that be Mm. 
I don't know. I mean, I think that like you and I have been almost in constant conversation for the last (laughs) month and a half, which I think is like another story, right? Like the ways in which um, there are networks of folks holding each other through this moment and through the work that we have in front of us. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So I feel like, so much of that has been answered in the questions that we've been asking each other offline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Where do you find joy and hope? Mm. And you've sort of said it, but like, where do you find joy and hope and how does that like keep you always? Yeah. And I didn't intend for it to be asked so that I can answer right now. But I think that answer is really easy for me in terms of faith. So I I really do. Like, that's the answer. Like, I find it in God. I find it in my faith. And I'm just grateful. And I just want you to know that I respect you so much that that's why I asked to be asked a question. Because there aren't many people you can trust with your vulnerabilities that you can trust with questioning how you're thinking about something, knowing that you're both just trying to get to a better place. I appreciate this space. And so it's, it's just like, this is where I'm finding joy right now. So I'm like, <laughs> yes, do you have another question? You know, like, make me oh. think about something when we get off the phone. You know, Listen, but it's I like, always have questions. <laughs> I know like, you do. <laughs> how, can we, how can we just, you know, yep. move money to Black Arts organizations? That's it. Period. That's my question. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> And I feel like that's what I'm going to keep trying to do, whether that's through advancing black arts, you know, then the work we're doing there or through my, and really the challenge is no longer through advancing black art, in my opinion. The challenge is how to move larger sums of money and investments and those live in other portfolios and how do we break down the barriers so that organizations in particular can have access. And that requires changing standards, values, thoughts, social constructs all of which we talked about today wait Um, i'm sorry i do have a question and maybe you can answer it now later and i know that we've probably talked about it offline but for the record yep um there is a philosophy of thought Mm -hmm. um about like we can't save them all them all being who, what, everybody, we can't say everybody, everybody. Right. And so like this understanding that like, Oh yeah. What is the rubric for that decision? Like if, if, Mm -hmm. if your institution, which it doesn't sound like it is, but if you are in conversations with folks who have that philosophy, like what is that? what is your response to it? What, oh, like, like what, it, like what, like what's Ooh. the criteria? Cause I was, I was presented with this and I am still just like, my response was just like, why can't we try? Why can't we try? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but to your point, and I think I actually probably feel a little frustrated because, um, I do sit in an institution where I feel like my colleagues, and this goes back to what I appreciate appreciate about our team, I do feel like they're like, why can't we try to save everybody? Like, mm-hmm. why can't we try to do it all? And the reality is like, 
the reality is you can't because there's only a limited amount of funds. Like, and I think like people can look at Heinz or any institution and be like, oh my gosh, you, you have so much money, right? And there is, there are a lot of resources and maybe even compared to other foundations or compared to state agencies, you know, yeah. RIP with the recent news about the um, Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. But like, I, the way I think is like, if you have $13 million, you already know X is going to this, X is going to that. Um, oh, we're about to get into, okay. We already know <laughs> this is how the pie normally divides, right? And this is where the my rub is. You already know how this is the pie. You only have X amount. It's like when you have your bills. It, I could think about everything I want to buy when I get my paycheck, but the reality is my paycheck is only my paycheck. So why am I thinking about all these other things instead of really drilling down to how principally do I want to save my, spend my money? I want to save, I want to pay myself, I want to pay the most important bills for my basic needs, and then I have X amount left to do this with, which usually may be another bill, right? So I feel like sometimes in philanthropy, we approach it with this godlike complex, like we have this unending ability to save beyond the reality of this is a a transaction of dollar amount, unless we get into the more than money piece, which we should be in, which I feel like is our approach in advance in black art, where the purpose is not just the distribution of wealth, it's building networks, it's, it's, it's wealth building, it's utilizing money as a means by which to do larger work, since there aren't enough financial dollars for everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a different kind of approach to philanthropy, which really should be the approach since it's the love of man is the word we're talking about with philanthropy, right? Yeah. So um, what I want to say, though, is I think m the biggest win for me in this hour would be when I talk to the board to be able to say we should not be sequestering funds for emergencies. We should not be just thinking solely about how to get through 30, December 31st, although we should have that information. In order to answer the question of, the, of what we want on the other side, we should be reevaluating all of the money in our portfolio to align with that which we say are our priorities and our space that is our ground to till and plant and, mm -hmm. and work mm -hmm. for the benefit of what we want to see happen a year, two, five years from now. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, I think too much is just like, take this money, put it in emergency, make these rules, then take this and do this, because this is how we do this, instead of doubling down on the principles that should be equitable anyway, yeah. and then making sure the entire portfolio reflects those values. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for, for just like, talking me through, uh, you know, I feel a little better. I started off a little just <laughs> tangle, but I feel like even the heart, you know, you asked some things that took me to some places that I feel like um, is going to challenge me in my work and continue to, and that's, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and go deep with us. You can find other episodes and excerpts of Deep in the Work on anchor.fm slash deepinthework.
For more information about Red Olive Creative Consulting and the work we do to move people and resources to art and culture organizations, visit our agency website at www.redoliveconsulting.com. Bye, y'all.